Hey everybody, this is Daniel Patrick and this is episode number 176 of the Mandolins of Beer podcast brought to you in part by my favorite website, The Mandolin Cafe. Also brought to you in part by Acoustic Disc. Happy birthday to the dog. His birthday was yesterday. Head over to Acoustic Disc now, sign up for the emails, get the treat of the week, get yourself a copy of Dog Works Volume 5 and listen to the Acoustic Encounters podcast with Dog and Danny Barnes and Grace Design. Grace Design preamps, there's a big reason why you see a bunch of your favorite players plugging in to these incredible boxes. They're some of the finest preamps on the market and if you want to get the best tone out of your acoustic instrument, if you have to plug it in and can't mic it, use a Grace Design preamp. Heck, you can mic it as well. It's got uh, multiple. You go for the Felix and you can mic and plug in. They're the best. So thanks to Grace Design. Hey, how is everybody doing? It is the 24th of March today. Super excited for my guest this week, Critter, Chris Eldridge. Guy, such a nice guy, such a great player. I've been a fan of his since the first time I heard the uh, infamous String Dusters album. We talk about the infamous String Dusters. We talk about John Duffy. We talk about Bill Monroe. Uh, and we talk about his brand new project, Mighty Poplar, with uh, Noam Pekilny and Greg Garrison, Alex Hargraves, and Andrew Marlin. The album's incredible. I do not put any samples on this episode because the album isn't out yet, and I don't want to spoil the mystique. And I'm not sure if they want samples of the other songs out there. There are a few singles out there, though, that you can get in all the usual streaming places. And I'll put links as well if you haven't heard them. But I'm guessing if you're a fan of this podcast, you've definitely probably heard these tunes. And we also talk about a few other bands, like I mentioned. We talk about John Duffy and Infamous String Dusters. And again, I don't do any samples on this one because when I do one for a brand new release, I like to be focused on the artist's album. Although I do slide in a Bill Monroe solo that we talk about near the end of the podcast. That's pretty sweet. So... I uh, hope everybody's been doing well, man. I've got a cool week coming up. I'm playing the uh, Charleston Bluegrass Festival on Saturday afternoon, 3.15 p.m. Uh, and then I'm headed to Nashville to start a really, really exciting recording project. And that's all I want to say about it right now until it's a little bit further underway and some tracks are done. But I, I am so excited to say the least. I cannot wait uh, and so, yeah, that's going to be, and I'm going to, I'm going to head over to D's lounge, I believe on Monday. So if anybody's in town or hanging out, going to go see East Nash grass play. That'll be a really good time. Uh, I get to see my buddy Harry in that incredible band. So yeah, be there for a few days coming up. Really, really looking forward to it. Oh, and thank you to everybody who bought mandolin shirts. Um, I am sold out of the black shirts. I have some of the white shirts left. Actually, I think I have like three XL black mandolin shirts. If you want one, a page called I Am Not Billy Strings shared a picture of Jared said found the shirts and my email blew up that day. And so I got them all shipped out uh, except for the XXLs, which were already sold out and shipped out from the week before. Anyway, uh, so I am going to get those. I'll have more the 31st of March, according to the person who prints the shirts for me. So thank you so much for the orders. If you want to get one yourself, just head on over to mandolinsandbeer.com and pick one up from the, from the store. Okay, let's get into the sponsors for this episode. Peghead Nation with Peghead Nation streaming video courses in mandolin, guitar, banjo, fiddle, dobro, ukulele, and bass. You'll learn bluegrass, old time, and other styles from some of the most talented players and instructors in roots music. PegheadNation.com has a crazy great lineup of mandolin instructors. Sharon Gilchrist, Joe K. Walsh, Mike Compton, John Reichman, Aaron Weinstein, Marla Fibus, Chad Manning, and Ian Curry. 
All the courses include high-quality multi-angle video lessons, downloadable notation and tab play-along tracks, and plenty of tunes and songs to play. The best part is you can sign up today, get your first month for free by going to payheadnation.com and using the promo code MANDOLINBEER, all one word, at checkout. Northfield Mandolins, let's build more than a mandolin together. Check out their website at northfieldmandolins.com or download their app at mandosummit.app for lots of special performance recordings, demonstrations, and special workshops. Ellis Mandolins, handcrafted mandolins designed and built in Austin, Texas. Tone Slab Picks, I am seeing these pop up on a lot of people's feeds those people who told me that they bought these tone slabs because they heard about them on this podcast, thank you so much. Uh, they're they're incredible. They're slabs of tone. The website says it all. Frank Sullivan and his partner have put together a pretty sweet product. You go to toneslabs.com and there's all the popular shapes and thicknesses for you to pick from. So head over to toneslabs.com and get yourself a slab o tone. Elderly Instruments is your trusted source for new and used vintage and fretted stringed instruments for the experienced beginner player. Their vast selection of mandolins, guitars, banjos, ukuleles, and did I say mandolins? Includes all of the accessories and books to go with them. All instruments are inspected and set up for easy playability, and their down-to-earth and knowledgeable staff are there to help. They are in their 51st year. They're family-owned and operated. They ship worldwide, and you can visit them anytime at Elderly Dot com. I love window shopping. But let's say you want to build a mandolin. Let's say you want to construct your own instrument. Well, you are in luck. My buddy Roger Simonoff has got you covered in every building aspect you could imagine via these incredible books. The best luthiers in the world have these books on their bookshelf, and you can get them too. If you go to straightupstrings.com and head over to the book section, the Ultimate Bluegrass Mandolin Construction Manual, Luthier's Handbook, The Art of Tap Tuning, The Physics of Music, Templates and Fixtures, Pro Designs for F5s, H4 Mandolas, H5 Mandolas, A1 Mandolins, F5 Mandolins, F4 Pro Series, and A5 Mandolins. They've got them all there, and Roger, being a friend of the podcast, is offering you 10% off. And not just off the books, off Straight Up Strings as well. So head on over there to straightupstrings.com. Get yourself 10% off by using the promo code, all one word, all caps, MANDOBEER at checkout. Sign up for that newsletter as well. All right, everybody, let's get into this episode with Chris Eldridge. What a great conversation. So glad that he got to do it. Remember, Mighty Poplar comes out 331. Be sure to get yourself a copy of that. Cheers, everybody. my guest and i am so happy to to welcome him to the podcast here you may know him as critter it's chris eldridge chris how's it going buddy it is going great it's going great i'm so happy to be here out taking a walk and podcasting yeah perfect you're like we're just talking about the you're the best multitasker right now that i know of <laughs> <laughs> you you learn I've, I've got a new baby oh congratulations Thank you. Yeah, you, you you learn to kind of, you know, you got to fit things in when you can. Yeah, man. Well, the well, the first thing we uh, we need to talk about right off the get-go and, and, and how this got started was the brand new album coming out here on March 31st, Mighty Poplar. So, yeah. uh, man, congratulations. I've had the album for a few weeks now, been able to listen to it, and it is just absolutely stellar. 
Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, I'm I'm so proud of it. I'm I'm so deeply psyched about that record. Um yeah, for me it's the first time I've gotten to be part of anything that's like basically real honest to the bone bluegrass. Um kind of since I was with the string dusters, I would say. And the dusters, you know, I left the dusters in 2007. And um the dusters kind of in the earlier days were a little bit more to the bone bluegrass. Um, so it's it's been kind of that long since I actually got to, you know, do something that was that, I don't know, just connected to the, what I feel is the core of, of the music. Um, and to do it with Noam and Greg and Alex and Andrew is like, I kind of couldn't imagine a group of guys I would rather play that music with, honestly. It's kind of like, for me, it's like my personal dream team for doing that stuff. So, um, yeah, I just feel really um, excited and, and and happy about the whole thing. I got to meet you at the uh, Green Mountain Bluegrass Festival last year for the first time, and we got to hang out for just a little bit and talk. But before we met, I, I saw you bump into Tatiana Hargraves, and what I loved immediately about the conversation was like, you're just like, I, I want to pick. Let's get up. Let's, let's <laughs> yeah. pick some time tonight. And then there was an epic jam. But I could just tell your love of music is just, it radiates from you. <laughs> yeah. Well. Yeah. Thank you. And that it, it really it does. And I feel like it it's um it's just such a different thing, you know, to get to to get to be at a festival like that where you have so many friends and and it really does center around bluegrass. You know, this this music that I it's kind of such a part of me. Um, and I, I, I've been very happy, you know, I feel so lucky to have had the career and done the stuff I've done, you know, punch brothers and Julian. Um, and that's kind of been the bulk of what I've done professionally. And I think that's kind of probably what people think of if, if they think of me at all, they probably think of me more in those kinds of contexts. But, um, but, you know, I grew up, like my dad's in the seldom scene, you know, I like really grew up in bluegrass going to Denton, North Carolina. And I mean, it's like, I really, bluegrass is really kind of deep in my heart and soul. And, and so to, to get to be in a place like that um, with all your buddies to have the opportunity to just pick and have the opportunity to just like, I don't know, just do the thing that we all kind of grew up doing when we were kids. It's, it's the best. How did this Mighty Poplar project come together? Because it's, I mean, obviously you and Noam and, and Greg have a connection, mm -hmm. you know, from yep. uh, from Punch Brothers, but uh, getting Alex and Andrew in there, how how did that whole whole thing come together? Well, yeah, there 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 have been a lot of um, there are a lot of connections kind of within the band. Of course, yeah, Noam and Greg and I played a lot of music together. Um, haven't played much music with Greg in the last probably 15 years or so but you know greg is just an all-time favorite bass player of mine and just a musician in general um and you know andrew i started getting to know andrew at i think telluride i think it was a couple times a couple years at telluride um you know where we would just be back at somebody's condo you know on saturday friday saturday night and just would you know there'd be a picking session and Andrew and Emily were were just such stalwarts uh, in that, 
And I don't know. I just remember we had a few nights of just staying up till, you know, 4.30 a.m. Just picking tunes um, that were so joyful. And so we've kind of always become, we've always been buddies, but but I kind of knew him honestly through that before I knew, you know, Mandolin Orange, you know, which, which was the band name back then. Um, and, and watch house, like Andrew was just like this guy who was just such a lifer, such a great musician. And we just had a lot of fun. And Alex, I've known, gosh, I've met Alex when he was like 10 or 11 years old, actually speaking, since we're on the mandolin and beer podcast, he was taking mandolin lessons from Lou Reed at Wintergrass and probably like, yeah, I mean, I don't know. This is probably sometime in the early 2000s um but he was in the he was in the academy taking mandolin and and i remember lou saying oh there's this kid alex he's really good um so yeah that's the first time i met alex i mean it's probably 20 years ago and we've been buddies that whole time you know he's a kid you know that's one of the cool things about this music is that ultimately everybody kind of you know relates to everybody else through music so and alex is such a he's been this incredible musician from day one and so, um, yeah, we've kind of been buddies. So, so there are all these, and, and everybody else in the band could tell you a similar, they could, you know, describe their own particular web. Um, so, so that all existed. And then I think Greg kind of had an idea um, to just put a, a bluegrass band, a band together to, to really just play genuine bluegrass music. And, um, and so, and that basically, and this is the band that kind of happened. So, so it's a, it's a really, it, it feels like uh, there's a Sam Bush and Alan Mundy record from way back in the day called Together Again for the First Time. And I feel like um, that kind of sums up the whole Mighty Poplar thing. It, it just feels like we're, um, you know, it feels like a reunion and we've never been a band before. <laughs> you know? <laughs> It's interesting too, because uh, I, I, you know, everybody. I think maybe aside from Andrew, uh, although you know he's got some bluegrass ties, but uh, it seems like you, a, a four fifths of that band at least, grew up with, with, um, you know, very bluegrass leanings, and then you've all kind of gone into these bands that have become extremely popular, bluegrass based, but I wouldn't say necessarily bluegrass you know like punch brothers and leftover salmon and now i just saw um alex playing with billy strings at an arena (laughs) yeah saturday and sunday and i think it's great that you can this this album feels so genuine like you could sneak this album into a playlist and and unless somebody recognized the voices this album would fit in with any classic bluegrass album you know that from whenever you know i would say like 70s 80s easily I think, yeah, you know, it's cool. I think I'm glad that you feel it that way because I, I'm one of the things that I really like about this record is that, like I said before, it feels like, feels like real, what I consider to be real deal bluegrass, you know, just, there's not, uh, I don't want to say artifice as if like things, but there's, there aren't many of the other trappings. It's like, to me, it's the core of what the music is, but it's also, it feels, um, it feels connected to sort of an older version of the music that isn't, um, you don't really hear much of today. You know, I feel like a lot of, a lot of actual bluegrass today, um, 
kind of mainstream stuff. You set aside like, you know, Billy strings and that whole thing. Um, but I think a lot of it sounds more like it's coming out of the sort of North Carolina Lonesome River Band, Third Time Out, Doyle Lawson and Quicksilver tradition, um, which which kind of really springs off of, of you know, J.D. Crow and the New South, that whole thing, I think, comes off of that. Um, and that stuff is awesome, but I think I think one of the things that I really dig about Mighty Poplar is it doesn't sound like it's coming off of that uh, root system. It's, it's kind of a little bit more connected in my mind to... Um, you know, songs, you know, which it makes it kind of like the seldom scene to me. It's, it's trying to try to be connected to songs and just vibe and less, less, you know, less kicking, although we want to be able to do that too. <laughs> um, you know, but, but it's uh yeah, it's a fun, it's a, I don't know. It's a, it's a, it's a different, it's a different take on it, which I'm really um, happy about because hopefully Hopefully it does kind of sound like its own thing, but if it sits inside, sits next to anything, hopefully it's music that um, doesn't sound like all the stuff that's going on right now. Yeah, I think it almost has, I was telling Andrew, it reminds me, his playing anyway, reminds me a bit of like Caleb Clowder and Foghorn String Band. Like this whole album has a groove. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, it's like, yeah, none of it's, you know, it's just different. Um, but yeah, I think um, there is kind of a, there's a really fun infectious groove about you know the thing about being in the rhythm section of this band that that to me is actually what i i love the most about playing bluegrass um is is just being part of the rhythm section you know tony everybody knows like tony rice was kind of like my mentor and, and he was like a big influence on me and and um and the thing that i've always gotten off on the most with tony's playing is the rhythm and how he could how he could affect the way a whole band did their thing um and i can't cannot do that at all like tony did but that's always kind of, to me been like the highest calling as a guitar player um is just trying to do that thing and so to do it to be in a band where that has kind of a fun flexible bouncy groove um it's really joyful it's it's really I, like I get a lot out of that just you know from from being a rhythm guitar player. It's it's super fun for me. You're also a really good singer, man. Oh, thank you. Absolutely. Thank you. I I would say um I mean I love this entire album, but I would say one of the tracks that I go back to, which is actually one of my favorite tracks just in general uh, by the original artist, but Let Him Go On Mama. Yeah, John Hartford. Um, yeah, that was. That was fun. You know, we, we kind of just wanted, we knew that, um, you know, Andrew, I feel like Andrew's, Andrew's like, you know, I, I love his singing so much. I mean, he, I feel like he's a real generational voice, uh, kind of in, in all of this music. Um, and, and, um, so that was obviously he was going to be the singer, but I think everybody wanted me to sing a song or two and, and, just kind of think trying to think like what would be some what would be neat to have on there and i just i don't know i love john harford so much i mean he's such a such a total superhero um and and kind of brings some of that that vibe i think that that kind of 70s loose um loose but joyful it's like coherent but loose <laughs> um kind of kind of thing that's kind of what the seldom scene did too you know the seldom scene like the original band 
could not have been more loose. But somehow, and Olden in the way was kind of like that as well. You know, there's like, it's like, it couldn't be more loose. It's, you listen to the, that music of those bands and it's sort of like a, uh, sort of like an old jalopy, like riding down the road. But, but somehow, um, you know, it goes and it's actually, you look at it and you're like, well, that's actually the coolest car I ever saw. Um, <laughs> you know, that's, I feel like they kind of, that was a little bit more of the aesthetic. Again, it was the seventies. I feel like, I feel like the, I feel like J.D. Crow and the New South, um, especially that 0044 record, really kind of, it was such a strong statement um, that it, it changed a lot of the way people, it changed what people were prioritizing, I think, in the music. Um, you know, they, they sang so in tune. A lot of people sang in tune, but they also just played with, with such a, a certain kind of coherence. They had a bounce too, though. You know, it wasn't, that band had really had a bounce. You know, Skaggs is a super bouncy player. Tony is pretty bouncy. He's very bouncy as well. Um, but it's a, they, somehow they did a thing and then, and then the music that kind of came in its wake was just way more driving and, and straight. And it just put, I feel like it put, um, you know, having that killer driving timing that, you know, J.D. Crow kind of was responsible for. Like that became this primary, um, this primary driving force that musicians were going for. Um, but before that, before that, I feel like the music was a little more, a little more loose. Um, and I think that's kind of cool. You know, I mean, I, when I go back and listen to the really early bluegrass, my, my favorite stuff of all, um, you just can't beat filming around the bluegrass boys. You really can't. I mean, that stuff is, it's so cool and so singular and, and talk about a bounce, man, that, that, that band kind of consistently through the years, even as the personnel changed and you had all these different guys um, who were being themselves, there was still this, this kind of unified um, cool groove that really came from Bill. It's like the way Bill would chop mandolin, the way that the fiddles would play time, the way the banjo, it wasn't that, it wasn't like the J.D. Crow school. It had a little more kind of pop in it as well or bounce in it. Um, the guitar play, you know, all that stuff kind of had this really neat old bounce. And so I think a lot of the music before J.D. Crow um, came along had, it had more of that kind of stuff. Um, and I think, so I think, you know, these bands from the seventies, you really kind of had a lot of that. Yeah, and I do think somehow a little bit of that even now in certain things is is starting to to disappear. I think you can tell when you listen to certain bands that like yeah, and obviously Billy Strings is a is going to be a super attractive thing if you're a young person playing music. But the thing that Billy Strings' entire band has that maybe somebody just discovering Billy Strings doesn't have yet is Billy Strings can sit down and play you. He can play you Doc Watson and Bill Monroe tunes until you couldn't take it any longer. Everybody in that oh, yeah. band went back. Absolutely. And, and I think that's that's in some stuff that people don't go back and you can almost tell when it is. You know, it's just like, oh, well, I just, just want to play through pedals and, and rage. I'm like, well, that's fun, too. But um, you can definitely tell the difference between a band that has roots in that original stuff and gone back to people who haven't and are just like looking forward. What were some of the songs that you suggested for this Mighty Poplar record? I think the two, the two that I did were uh, probably the two that I suggested. Ultimately, the, the, 
you know, which is Love and Babe and um, and Let Him Go on Mama. Ultimately, though, we kind of had it was like an internal conversation, um, like on I think a text thread or a Google Doc or something, where we were just throwing around. We were throwing in a lot of uh, suggestions for tunes, and you know, Andrew had a million. Just like from from the second the gates opened, like Andrew just had a million because he's <laughs> um, he's just a song guy, you know, and and he's just. He's such a lifer. I mean, he just really lives for it. So he had he had a whole bunch of stuff. Um, he and Noam had some ideas. I think Alex, you know, came up. He had the idea of doing Great Eagle, um, and I kind of came in as I tend to do with most things, sort of towards the eleventh hour, and got all of a sudden had like a burst of creative energy. Um, I think I was I forget what I was doing leading up to that, but 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 yeah, kind of had a bunch of suggestions and, and yeah, we just kind of narrowed it down to the ones on the record. But I think the, the ones that I, you know, brought were probably the two that I sang. Um, but then it really did wind up being, but I, I brought a lot more too, as did everybody. And, and so we kind of just whittled it down into what it is as a collective. Well, it's man, it's, it's killer. 42 minutes too. It's like that perfect length, you know, like before you know it, it's over and you want to listen to it again. So, oh, good. Yeah. Good, yeah. good, good. Yeah. I'm really, I'm really into it. I, I hope people dig it. Um, you know, we're just, it, for me, it feels like what's cool about Mighty Poplar is it feels like a, um, it feels like a passion project. You know, it's like, it's like the kind of thing that I just love to do so much. But I also, if I can say it without being, you know, sounding haughty, I think it's really good. Like, I'm really, I'm deeply proud of it too, you know, and I want to share it with people. So it's like it, it's a really it's really cool um, in that way that, um, I, you know, you're excited to be doing it. Um, and you also kind of just, you know, it's fun. It's fun. And, and you kind of stand behind it. And it's uh, it's nice in that way. This says a lot about you. You're, you're in some pretty super group, super groups as far as. Uh... When I listen, when I think of, I, we were talking before we started, and I saw the first String Dusters gig ever at the Ark in Ann Arbor. I shouldn't say the first String Dusters gig ever, but the first time they played the Ark in Ann Arbor, and and you were the guitar player. And there's a there's a killer band, uh, obviously the Punch Brothers. Um, and I'd love to talk to you know a little bit about the String Dusters too, if that's cool with you, because it's again it's something that I think a lot of people that I've interviewed on the podcast, especially a lot of younger people, that first album. Um, was a big influence on a lot of players, you know, it was just, just, just incredible. I love that. I've actually, the first two records I absolutely love. So love to maybe talk just a little bit about how that whole thing came together and what that was like. Yeah. Well, the, the dusters, I mean, I, I love, uh, being in that band. I love all those guys. Um, that was a very joyful time of life as well. Um, and it started uh, with a band called Stable Horse. We had a, so I went to Overland College up in Ohio. And uh, when I was a freshman, there was a guy who was a senior who was leaving named Zach Hickman. Um, he's a great musician, bass player, and kind of a ringleader of projects. Like Zach is always making something happen. And um, anyway, we played a bunch of music together. He, he played a bunch with uh, Josh Ritter. He was, Josh Ritter's musical director. He now plays with Rodney Corral. Anyway, Zach's always been doing cool stuff, but but kind of through me, he he kind of got into bluegrass a little bit. And when he graduated, he moved to Boston um, and kind of kept 
in touch with the bluegrass scene and he met Chris Pandolfi, who was at Berkeley. Panda was the first banjo principal ever at Berkeley College of Music. Oh, wow. Um, before there was a, before there was an American roots program, or I forget what they call it, but like, you know, basically there's like a bluegrass program now that Matt Glazer runs, but that didn't exist then. Panda, um, he was up there, he was doing it. And he actually encountered some, he was definitely going against some headwinds. Uh, Gary Burton, the great vibraphonist, was uh, the president of Berkeley at the time. And I don't think he was super keen on it, but Panda just wanted to make it happen and wanted to kind of get that, you know, education around himself out as, as he could. So, so he was in Boston doing that. Uh, Andy Hall had just left Boston for Nashville, but he'd been there. He'd gone to Berkeley. This is funny. Andy initially was at Berkeley as a, like, heavy metal like guitar player, like like death metal shredder. <laughs> I did. Uh, That's funny. <laughs> yeah, he was like fully played in like a hard metal band. Had long hair, um, you know, down to his waist. Um, but but he he injured his his wrist, I think, and so he had to. He couldn't play guitar anymore, and he he switched over to dobro. Somebody had like a little round neck dobro, and and he started playing dobro and got really into it. So anyway, Andy, Andy graduated. He was hung around Berkeley uh, in Boston for a few years. And so he and Panda had met. This is a very long way of just saying that that was the nucleus. Uh, Zach, Zach Hickman put us all together, uh, created this little band called Stable Horse. I mean, an EP that is rough, 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 rough stuff. <laughs> but um, we were such little kids. But, but um but that, uh, you know, it, it did feel special. Like Stable Horse felt cool and it, it felt like we had found um, our people. You know, I, I had an interesting thing growing up where, you know, I was around the seldom scene, um, you know, around all this really great bluegrass. I mean, um, you know, I have early memories of being around Bill Monroe and not even realizing it was Bill Monroe. And Tony Rice was like, you know, the guitar player in the seldom scene off and on for like a year uh, in the early 90s when John Starling was on call, who was a doctor. I mean, there was like, there was a lot of killer stuff around, but I never had, um, I never had kids that I played with. And even when I got to college, um, there was nobody up there who played bluegrass. I mean, like I said, Zach was a bass player, but he didn't play until I kind of got him playing it. Um, so I didn't actually discover my people um, that were my age and of a similar mind until uh, until Zach put this band together with Panda and Andy Hall. And that was the Dusters. I mean, excuse me, that was uh, Stable Horse. And so we just had this idea that, okay, as soon as I graduated, because I was always the baby, I was always much younger than everybody else, we'd move to Nashville and really do this band. That was going to be the thing. So. Zach had his gig with Josh Ritter. He he decided he wasn't going to do it. So it was me and Pandolfi and Andy. So now this was like the nucleus of a band uh, that we were kind of just going to do. And um, meanwhile, Andy had been playing with, he started playing with Ronnie Bowman. Um, and in the Ronnie Bowman band, I guess uh, Jesse Cobb was playing mandolin and Jeremy Garrett was playing fiddle. And so he kind of found those guys and reported back to me and Pandolfi. He was like, there's these two amazing musicians, you know, we should get them in this 
nascent band. Um, and that was, yeah, that was kind of, uh, that was the beginning of it. Alan Bartram was the original bass player, but he was playing with Kenny and Amanda Smith at the time. And, and that was a steady gig and we were just trying to start this, you know, little thing up. So Alan wasn't available and, and we, we wound up finding Travis, um, in a hallway jam at, uh, the Galt house oh, wow. at IBMA back in, uh, that would have been 2004, I think. Yeah, it definitely was. Uh, yeah. IBMA 2004. We, we met Travis in the hallway jam and, and, uh, he came and played with us and he was, he was awesome. Amazing bass player, amazing singer, like the whole thing. And, and so that was kind of it, you know, we, we eventually kind of had our band and, um, and we, yeah, we were really excited. It was, a it was just so cool to, um, for me, like on a personal level, just to find a group of young people who were as kind of passionate and committed to, this music and and just trying to give it everything we had um that, that was awesome and, and the dusters that you know that's that's kind of what they represented to me it was so fun man that was a that was a cool band yeah now how hard was it then to be a like you know have this band that's got some momentum but then you, you get a you get a call to to play with chris feely and so that oh. i mean it has to be kind of like a a a tough decision in a way to, to make that. Oh yeah. It was, it was, um, it was brutal. It was like simultaneously the like <laughs> most exciting and also most awful thing. Um, <laughs> it, you know, in the sense that like you couldn't do both. Um, and they're both things that were, you know, you, you cared about so much. I mean, yeah. Punch, punch kind of got going, you know, Steely called all of us, uh to make his next solo record is what it was uh which actually was going to be what turned in you know the blind leaving the blind that didn't come out until a few years later but this is what initially sparked the call and you know he called me and noam and greg and gabe um uh to do this solo record and yeah that was i got the email at rocky grass in 2005 oh, wow. um and yeah, where I was, I was playing with the seldom scene. Cause that year actually, so after I graduated from Oberlin, I, the scene actually, I was a full-time member of the seldom scene for, for about a year, year and a half. Like they, they just split me in. I was like, so that was, that was kind of what I was doing then in that first year before the dusters really got going. Um, and yeah, so I was out there, got the email from Feely. It's like, wow, this is incredible. Cause Feely had been such a hero, you know? And, and, um, he was just a couple of years, basically my age and had just been crushing it. You know, everybody knew about him. And also Nickel Creek at that point had, they were fully um, established. And so this was like a really exciting thing. Um, but yeah, it was, and, and it had kind of always been, to be honest, like a goal of mine, you know, was to, play in a band with Feely. Like when I was younger, when I was a teenager, I was like, well, definitely want to play with that guy. <laughs> um, you know, I should be doing that with him. And so, um, yeah, it was tough, man, because, because, um, there, you know, the dusters were so committed and that was, that was kind of an all for one, one for all kind of situation. And when I had this other opportunity that, um, that 
aligned more with certain musical growth goals that I had. Um, like in, in, in that I was just, I knew that in that environment I was going to be pushed. I was going to grow in ways that I, you know, couldn't even imagine. Um, and I was so close with the guys in the dusters and I love that band, but yeah, ultimately I kind of, you know, I talked to a bunch of people about it, did a lot of soul searching for a long time. Um, and ultimately kind of was like, I think I want to, you know, see where this thing takes me but it was a it, it really was like if i'm being honest like a painful period for everyone it was it was intense for a while it's all good now but it was tough i bet yeah. man you get that email and you just want to tell everybody you know and you're like oh i can't tell my buddies <laughs> like oh my gosh how do i how do i say you guys aren't gonna believe this <laughs> yeah yeah well and it, and it really is true it's because i like i i love the dusters I, I was so proud of that music and i and i i love those guys you know like brothers um but just kind of where i was in my life and and what my kind of dreams had always been uh for how to kind of have a a certain kind of life of learning and music you know i kind of had to do that so yeah it was it was kind of wild um but yeah, and I kind of did both things as much as I could for a little while, but Sutton wound up, um, we made the, how to grow a woman from the ground record and Sutton wound up doing a lot of those dates that year. Um, cause when I was out with the dusters, um, and then, yeah, I guess I played my last gig with, with them. Uh, I think it was like August 20th or 21st, I think 2007. I remember the last song played Uncle Penn and ends with a G run. So we go, and uh, and that was that. But but um, yeah, I mean, you know, Jesse Cobb. Speaking of mandolin players, what an absolute beast! Killer, absolute beast. Yeah. If 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 anybody knows Jesse Cobb, send him my information. I would absolutely love to have him on this ep- uh, this podcast. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and so and well, it, fortunately, it worked out for everybody. You know what I mean? Everybody's absolutely, you know, top top of the game. And then you mentioned, uh, you know, growing up around the seldom scene. The other thing I think John Duffy is one of the most criminally underrated mandolin players. As far as if you know who John Duffy is, then you know he's incredible, and he's not underrated. You, you know he's great, but I don't think enough people know John Duffy. So I, I maybe I was wondering if you could talk just a little bit about John Duffy and his playing, and and maybe that would turn some people on onto him as well because you got to spend a lot of time around him when you were young oh absolutely yeah duffy was you know for for people who are listening to this who don't really know i mean john duffy is one of the one of the all-time titans of the music you know he's he's kind of uh he wasn't first generation with like bill monroe and flat and scruggs uh and stanley brothers he was second generation and i don't know if there was more of a just force of nature you know, Titan in that second generation than John Duffy. He had, his dad was a singer, uh, like an opera singer, sang with the Metropolitan Opera and, um, you know, taught John kind of vocal techniques of, of how, how that works, you know, when, when John was a boy. So he just, Duffy just had this crazy voice. Um, he also, his mandolin playing was just so fearless um and creative but just just fiery i mean i feel like he he took a lot of the early lessons of 
rock and roll, which, which by the way, rock and roll took lessons from bluegrass. I mean, Chuck Berry is a huge Bill Monroe fan. And, and so that was like a lot of the rhythm of what became rock and roll kind of actually came from, from Bill, but then it, then it got amplified. You had drums turned into this other thing, way more wild socially. So I feel like Duffy kind of had, had a lot of that energy from both sides, like from being a Bill Monroe disciple, but also he grew up in the fifties. And, um, I don't know, man, he was just, uh, he's just a kind of a force of nature musician. Um, and yeah, his first band, the country gentleman was this amazing band. They're very successful. Um, they kind of coincided with the folk boom, um, like late fifties, early sixties. Um, but you know, I think Duffy himself got really, you know, they played, they were playing Carnegie hall. Uh, they were getting invited to play on the tonight show. I mean, it was like, they were, they were really doing it. Um, but John got uh, really disgusted. He was kind of a, a purist. He was kind of a real sensitive um, guy at heart and kind of a purist. And, and I th- with the tonight show, the band leader at the time, you know, they were invited on, but basically the deal was they were, they were going to have to kick back the fee. Uh, it was like actually pay to play. Um, I mean, this was like 60, you know, yeah, 60 years ago. But, um, but, you know, I think that was like the last straw as I understand it. Duffy was just like, I'm done with this. Like this business is corrupt and, and goofy because he just didn't really have the constitution for that kind of stuff. He, I think he really was just kind of like this pure sensitive guy in a way. So he left, um, and, and became an instrument repair person. This is, and, um, he was actually, John Duffy was the, this is a little piece of trivia. That's hilarious. He was the first authorized Martin guitar repair person outside of the Martin factory. Oh, wow. There ever was was John Duffy. (laughs) No way. Wow. Yeah. And, and, and by the way, let me also tell you, he was a horrible luthier, <laughs> just, just terrible, just butchered, butchered so many guitars. We've got a guitar at home that, you know, he, it's like everything you could do wrong from today's perspective, John did. So, and we say that with love, but, um, but yeah. Um, so, but, but he was this really interesting cat and he was living in DC and my dad uh, got to know him because my dad started teaching banjo uh, at this music shop, uh, in Arlington where John was doing the repairs and they kind of got to be friends. And I don't know, there's the whole seldom seen origin story we can skip over, but they, they kind of, basically the seldom seen was born and, uh, that was kind of Duffy's second act. But, um, you know, it was interesting. Like he, because of his early experiences, he did not want to really play the music business game. Um, he kind of wanted to do it all on his own terms. And, uh, so like they, the seldom scene never had a tour bus. They've never really went on tour. I mean, they would fly out for a weekend. A couple times they went, you know, would fly internationally and maybe they'd be over there for like a week if they did that. But basically they were, they played their weekly gig at the Birchmere, um, you know, right outside of DC made records, made these awesome records were totally incredible. You know, and everybody, if you were in D.C. back in the day, you know, the seldom seen was the place to be. It was like Linda Ronstadt was coming by. Uh, like, I'm just playing. But, you know, everybody, John Prine, 
Bob Dylan, uh, although Dylan actually never made it, he asked them to, he asked them uh, to to play an extra set. He was like, I want to come over after my show. And Duffy was like, absolutely not. <laughs> we're going home. But, but Dylan called the club, you know, it was like, that was the place to be. They were, they were the sh- basically. And, um, and they really did it on their own terms. And so, um, yeah. So for anybody wondering about the old scene music, you know, check out, I'd say the quintessential stuff would be when John Starling was in the band initially. So that would be, uh, you know, act one, act two, act three, old train live at the cellar door, the new seldom seen album. And there's a record called baptizing that he kind of split duties. Uh, he left the band. It was an interesting thing when, when, when Starling left the band and Phil Rosenthal joined, they kind of split duties as lead singer and guitar player on one record. But but anyway, that that old stuff is is uh, it's really powerful and awesome, and um, yeah, and I feel like it's I feel like it's uh, like the, I, I observe that generationally, people who are younger than my generation kind of don't really know about that stuff in a similar way to the, to how like I am not well versed in like Jim and Jesse or. You know, the Osborne brothers. I mean, I know it a little bit because I've tried to do my due diligence, but it just wasn't part of the fabric of, of me growing up. But, you know, you listen to that stuff and it's incredible. And, and similarly, the seldom seen, um, obviously, I have a biased opinion, but it's a, it's a really amazing singular band. You know, record Old Train is really cool. Um, or the Live at the Cellar Door. Uh, but but John, you know, John is was just such a big part of that. He had this incredible voice and, and this kind of devil may care attitude, you know, I don't think he would do, um, you know, more than one or two takes in the studio. It's like he'd do a mandolin solo. I, I, here's another thing about John. I'm convinced that a lot of time he was, he was playing, he was aiming to play something ridiculous. Um, <laughs> and like, he didn't care if, it didn't check the normal boxes. He just wanted something that would get a reaction. He could play the most beautiful stuff on the mandolin. Um, He really could, you know, take these gorgeous solos, some of the most beautiful solos in Seldom Scenes catalog or John on mandolin. But he would also play these solos on kind of more uh, outrageous tunes that were just goofy, bending strings and hitting on the mandolin and doing all kinds of crazy stuff. I mean, it was, you know, borderline psychedelic before psychedelic was even like a thing, you know? Um, but he was just, he was just kind of fearless. He just did it all his way. I mean, just, just absolutely fearless. Killer performer too. Like a uh, showman in a way, you know, like just an entertainer. Yeah, definitely. Yeah. Well, you know, he would say, you know, this, you know, they were in show business, you know, the people, people paid, paid good money to be, entertained in fact i think there's a video a clip of him on youtube talking about this and i think he says basically exactly that it's like these people are here to be entertained and and so he would you know he would make a big show uh on stage of he would finish a solo and it used to piss my dad and and mike aldridge off so much you know because they're these like really like incredible like master musicians themselves and they'd play a solo and it's like this really great solo they'd nail it and you know the one you know 
banjo player in the audience would be like, hey, that was cool. And everybody else is sitting there. And Duffy <laughs> would, on the same fast song, just play this basically nonsense, but it was awesome, but it was kind of nonsense. You know, he wasn't trying to make a great statement. He was just doing a thing and he'd hit a big clam at the end and make a huge gesture with his body, throw his right arm down and just head up and the crowd would go crazy. And apparently my dad and Mike would just be like, what is it? This, like it would drive them nuts. Um, but, but he, the thing is he, he, it's like he kind of had the courage to do that because he actually, when he wanted to, when he wanted to really throw down, man, he could, he really for real could. And it's like, you listen to Duffy now and you know, you know, parameters change over the years. Um, I've, I've heard people arguing about how Bill Monroe is not a good mandolin player because he can't play as clean as Chris Dealey or Sierra Hall. It's like, to me, that's just, it's ignorant. Like, I don't know how, I don't know. I don't know a nice way to say it. Um, it's just ignorant. Um, it's, it's, it's not taking into account the whole picture of everything. It's, it's having a very kind of narrow myopic view of what makes something good or not. And, and, um, but I think, you know, like Duffy, you know, he's not going to be playing cleanly in that way. But there's just, man, I don't know, just his whole musical persona was so powerful and beautiful. Um, he's just he's one of the titans, you know. Big fan. So I'm glad. Oh, this yeah. is great that you got to because, uh, you know, unfortunately, I, I'll never be able to have him on the show. But it's, it's great to hear somebody who had like, you know, close experience with them because i'm a big fan and again i got super lucky at, 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 you know i was also at the height of like record store days or cd stores i should say you know yeah. so when i got man a mandolin and i was also like a general manager and, until i started playing music for a living i was like a manager for barnes and noble so i would just order in like every bluegrass oh, cool. cd i could get to stock the store up and so you know i'd bought like country gentleman and the string dusters album and you know nickel creek and bill monroe all at the same time so i kind of like just I would just buy it all and just like this crazy learning experience of, you know, finding all these cool artists at the same time, regardless of genre. I think we, oh, yeah. we don't have that. I mean, Spotify, it's as easy to get anything any longer, but you know, the odds of you getting a uh, seldom seen song, if you're not listening to anything from that area to pull up in your playlist is pretty slim as opposed yeah. to, to going and seeing the uh, old train album is just cool looking you know i mean i just was just yeah. like oh i'll buy this <laughs> you know you i that. know at the risk of sounding like a you know an old man like get off my lawn it's like it really is true there's there's something there's something sad about um yeah like art the album art is not which used to be like a really cool part i mean still is cool but like you're saying i i I've talked to countless people who like were really alive in the vinyl area. And it's like, you'd go to the record store and these records have, they had like big canvases. I mean, vinyl record is, it's large. And, and, uh, I feel like this looks cool. Um, or like, I mean, it's exactly what you're saying and you, you check it out. And, and also I think, um, the, the thing that, that is kind of lost with that is, kind of having the patience to actually sit and listen. Like I, I think vinyl records are wonderful. They sound, they can sound great. I think actually a lot of times vinyl sounds lousy, um, you know, to be contrary to the, I think what, you know, there's this, this kind of fetishization of vinyl. 
it can sound like the best, but a lot of times I feel like a lot of modern records that are recorded digitally and then mastered on the vinyl, uh, I would usually rather hear the digital personally, but I think they're for old music. It's the opposite. But, but anyway, the point I'm getting to is when you, um, have a vinyl record, you know, you've only got about, it's only asking you to sit and listen for about 18 minutes, <laughs> right. which is a nice amount of focus. It's like, that's not too much to give to something. It's like, okay, I can, I can sit here and really actually be present. I can, I can be mindful of this. Um, I can actually really listen to this for, for a little bit. And that, that, that the ritual of that is a, is a beautiful ritual. I think that's a really, um, cool thing. You know, I, I always had this hope that, you know, in like super distracted world that we live in right now, you know, there's this like, there's this whole like movement towards mindfulness. that's sort of in the zeitgeist of it all. And it's like, I, it's like, I want to like harness that. I want to be like, okay, yes, everybody practice mindfulness and do it by listening to a record, you know, do it, put, put on a record that you want to check out and actually just sit. And instead of, you know, meditating or whatever you know put on the record just really listen to it for 20 minutes and then if you're into it flip it over you only got 20 more um i think that's uh i don't know my little call to action to everybody i just read a thing too on the internet where it was like 50 percent. i i could be wrong it's very close to that i'm pretty sure it was 50 percent of uh people who buy vinyl don't have turntables <laughs> so there you go I, I think it's cool that they're supporting the artist and now don't get me wrong yeah but it, buy a turntable man but it's like it's like the canvas it's like it's like okay we buy this because we're supporting the artist and it looks cool um and yeah and definitely get yourself a turntable too and and check out the thing that they you know poured their heart and soul into um i mean it really is it really is true um yeah absolutely now you also play mandolin on a track on uh on this album and you've played with some of the the best mandolin players in the business you know and and still do and so one of the things i i i like to ask every player that i have on the show is if you had 10 minutes a day to work on something what would you work on? I would say since you've worked with some of the best mandolin players in the business, what's something that you don't think people work on enough or something they should be working on to make them a better player that might not be as obvious, you know, to them? Hmm. Well, I mean, yeah, I, well, I'll just, I'll, I'll take it away from what anybody else might think. I'll just tell you what I think sure. uh, from my perch as a guitar player, but I, you know, I think that, um, I think it's so important to, to chase, uh, to, 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 to pursue, to actually put some active, uh, energy into figuring out what you like into pursuing things that switch you on, that capture your interest, that capture your curiosity. Um, I think that a lot of times when, you know, you can't have something that feels sort of prescriptive, like do this for, you know, 10 minutes a day, uh, do that for 10 minutes a day. Um, you know, I, there's real value in that, but I think what, I think doing anything for 10 minutes a day, actually, uh, maybe, maybe do something for 10 minutes a day. Maybe <laughs> that's the, that's the prescription, but, but, but deeper than that, it's, you have to, um, 
you have to invest in what you love. You have to figure out what you're switched on about. And I think it's never going to work um, if you do something because somebody tells you you should do it. You have to find your way into it being fascinating for yourself. So something you could do, let's say you've got some kind of technical exercise, like you're the most dry thing in the world. Um, maybe playing, you know, a downstroke on your first string and then an upstroke on your second string, kind of going back and forth, like, you know, so, so that's a, that's a, that's a pretty awkward string crossing, you know, down on first and up on second and down on first again. Um, so let's say that's a boring technical exercise. How can you make that interesting? You know, maybe you could, maybe you could turn it into a little game for yourself. Maybe you could set up a parameter where you say, um, like, I'm going to do this right. I'm, I'm not going to move on uh, until I have nailed this basically perfectly uh, six times in a row. And so you just like kind of execute it. So, you know, maybe get a metronome going. Metronomes actually are, are great friends. I could talk a lot about that. But, um, you know, maybe with a metronome, because metronomes really just keep you honest. It's not that uh, they do anything other than just give you kind of a steady, um, a steady reference point that you can be in agreement with. And, and if you're not in agreement with it, it'll just show you that. And that's all the metronome does. It just kind of helps you see stuff for what it is. But anyway, you, you do the thing maybe six times in a row. And if you, if you mess up at, at a certain point, you start over. If you mess up on the fifth one, you start the count over. And for me, you know, that sort of thing was useful. I, I would probably try and for myself make it a little more interesting. Um, but, but that basic concept of giving myself a challenge and saying, okay, can you do this X number of times in a row accurately? It, it kind of would initiate um, the competitive side of me, the part of me that wanted to do something, the part of me that like when I was a kid, like loved playing video games. And I was trying to beat the video game or whatever it was, you know, is that that internal thing. I'm going to do this. I'm going to I'm going to accomplish that. I'm going to beat that thing. I'm gonna, and and by kind of setting a little achievable goal like that, I find it helps me get some laser focus. Um, and and you can always, you know, the parameters that you're playing with can change a lot. But I think that basic concept is a good one. But of course, that's just one tiny little thing. I mean, the the, the practice of of doing music is um, it's so big. There's so many so many ways we can we can think about it. I mean, technical skills are just so insignificant, really. Um, it, really, I mean, that's not even where it's at. Um, it's important to work on that stuff if you want to be that kind of uh, if you want to be a, a highly proficient player. But I'll, I'll tell you, I'll share a little anecdote with you. Um, that I've certainly shared before, but, um, you know, I, I used to teach these days I teach, uh, guitar on artist works. Um, and, but before I did artist works, there was a, a website called Sonic Junction I used to teach at. And there was this, uh, this fellow named, uh, Kip, who was a student on there. And when Kip first started out, he, you know, he was, he was probably in his fifties somewhere, um, hadn't played much guitar was struggling to play uh, a waltz, you know, count the one, two, three, boom, cha, cha. So Kip wasn't, he wasn't uh, a particularly advanced player. We'll put, we'll put it that way. Um, 
but he was great. And Kip would show up. I put up a new lesson every week. Kip would be the first person to respond to it, send me a video of him playing whatever he was playing. And, um, and, and he was just so loyal. He was so, um, there for the right reasons. You can tell that he loved it. So anyway, I was at home, uh, in our kitchen and I was, Kip had sent a video back on whatever tune I'd taught that week. And my wife, Kristen Andreasen, who's a really wonderful musician, uh, you know, she played in Uncle Earl for anybody who knows that band. Um, Kristen's a badass and total like BS filter. She, she really knows what's up. She's kind of one of my most trusted musical foils. Anyway, Kristen walked into the kitchen and, oh, by the way, and I should also say like Kristen, you know, I, I'm sure she appreciates like punch brothers, but it's like, that's not her thing. Like, her, <laughs> she's, she's not, she's not impressed by us. Like, um, in the, there's a funny, there's a funny, uh, onion article, uh, or onion headline, Steve Vai impresses neighborhood kids. Uh, <laughs> the, and I, I'm not, I don't want to, I'm not trying to sell punch brothers that, that low. Also Steve Vai is awesome, but, but all of that to say, like whatever, all the crazy stuff we can shoot, do, she doesn't really care that much. Um, she wants to hear something with heart and soul. So she walked into the kitchen and she, I was, Kip was playing. She didn't see what was going on. She stopped in her tracks and Kip was playing. And she goes, what is that? Like, what, what is that? Uh, and, and um, I was just like, I didn't even say anything. And she started, I'm, honest she started to cry a tear like like she goes that is so beautiful that's so beautiful and i think it was just angelina baker or something like that just played so simply but kip was playing it with so much intention so much beauty so i mean he he brought his heart to it he brought himself to it and that's not just those aren't just empty words like because it literally stopped my wife who's a really great musician in her tracks and she started to cry and, and I was sitting there too, like, like so proud of Kip when this thing was going down it, and his technique was not very good, you know, but it didn't really, and I don't, that's no, no shade on Kip because Kip's awesome. I love that guy, but, um, but it, that's not what it was about, you know? So I, I just, I kind of want to share that little anecdote um, to remind people that it can be about that. Um, if that's what you're into, that's great. You know, um, that's awesome. But it also doesn't have to be about that. And I think, I think it's, you know, there, there can be this sense that for something to be good, it has to check boxes, you know, especially with aspiring young musicians. I see this, you know, I teach at Oberlin um, uh, Conservatory up in Ohio where I went to school. And, uh, you know, it's something that I, I've seen with young musicians is they kind of get into this uh, mode of hierarchical thinking or, or, or thinking that, I can't do this unless I do this other thing. If I don't do this, it's not good. And I think that that's all um, true hogwash. I think, I think it's, it's, you know, you, you, you get into, you find your love and you cultivate your love for music and, and what you're doing with it. And, and you let that be your North star. Um, and if you do that, uh, you're going to want to keep doing it, you know, but um, that's, that's kind of the, that's kind of the real secret to the whole thing. That's perfect. That really goes back to the Bill Monroe thing. I would imagine some of those people that have that sort of mindset of perfection are the people who are like, oh, Bill Monroe didn't play clean. And, and my answer to anybody who ever says oh, exactly. that is go 
go learn a Bill Monroe song note for note and play along with it and tell me how easy it is. And then we'll, oh. we'll talk about perfection later because <laughs> you're going to be spending oh. a lot of time trying to figure that out. Absolutely. I mean, and also, also like Bill was like, man, he was, um, some of his stuff was out. It was like, he could have been playing with like, you know, Cecil Taylor or something like that. It's like, uh, there's one of these fifties recordings. I think it's the prisoner's song. <laughs> like the mandolin. Do you know what I'm talking about? Yeah, yeah. The mandolin solo he plays on that. Like, <laughs> I mean, it's wild. <laughs> It is so avant-garde and, and it's like, um, it's, I mean, it's just beautiful. Um, there, there's so much, there's so much, uh, depth there. Um, and not just in Bill, there was so much depth in Kip, you know, there's, there's just a lot of depth and you, you gotta be open to, to seeing things for what they are, um, to kind of appreciate, um, you know, you're missing a lot if you if you if you don't kind of keep yourself open to seeing things on their own terms. That's maybe a good way of saying that. That's a perfect way of saying it. Well, man, that 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 story about your wife shedding a tear is going to be in the top five most beautiful stories told on this podcast so far. That's incredible. <laughs> you know, it's, it's it really happened. I and I feel kind of bad because I I probably this is probably like the third time I've told that story in public. You know, so it's not like. It, but it's just, it was, it happened and it was so true. And it's like, man, that was just like the most, um, just the most perfect example of that thing. And, and I think it's just, it really is true. You can't fake that kind of stuff. Um, and, and it just kind of shows us what, what really can matter, you know? And then the last question I have, are you a beer drinker? I, not much, although um, I've kind of been more into sours lately. But yeah, I mean, I I do love, you know, on the punch bus we get we get some really good beer uh, sometimes. So I've yeah I've definitely gotten into some epic uh, Jolly Pumpkin ales. Yeah, yeah. Do you have a favorite? If 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 it was your choice to have a particular beer on the bus, is there a favorite beer oh. that you would pick? Oh, you know what? You know what? Um, I can't think of any uh, a specific jolly. I just know every time we have jolly pumpkin, it's all so interesting. There's also a place in uh, Oklahoma City, Prairie Brewing, right? Is that is that a thing? I'm not sure. I've never been to Oklahoma City. That's. I'll type it in here real quick here. Uh, maybe that's not the right name, but th those guys are kind of throwing down on a like like jolly pumpkin. I mean, it's just so fascinating. But I think the one beer that I kind of just I'm always so happy when it's around is uh, a little sip of sunshine, a little oh, Vermont yeah. beer. Yeah. Love that stuff. Me too. And Prairie was right. You had another, it was correct, that brewery. So. Yeah. Oh man, that pra pra Prairie Artisan Ales, right? Yes. Is that it? That is it. Yeah. Those guys are crushing it. Crushing it. Um, I got to get out there then. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, totally. Well, man, congratulations on the uh, Mighty Poplar album. Um, I would, uh, I'm would i looking forward to seeing you guys at Green Mountain again this year. Uh, well, I should say looking forward to seeing you at Green Mountain again. It'll be the first time you guys are playing there. Um, hopefully we can pick a tune or something backstage 
during that time as well. I would love that. Same here, man. I would would totally love that. Yeah, it's been a pleasure talking to you, and thanks so much for doing what you do and being a being a hub of the mandolin community. Thanks for letting me kind of, uh, you know, duck in, uh, duck into the club for a moment here. Oh man, it was my pleasure. I've been a, I've been a fan of your playing, your rhythm playing, especially too. I mean, obviously you're a killer lead player. Um, and I think sometimes maybe people don't necessarily realize the, uh, you're like also a master rhythm player. I love watching you when I go, actually, I, I flew up to Ann Arbor this December to see you guys play with the Bela Fleck tour oh that was a fun show oh yeah. my gosh and um i probably spent as much time watching you as i spent watching chris and sierra because i just love your approach to rhythm you're all over the neck man you're not just thank uh, you yeah absolutely it's really inspiring to watch thank you well that's yeah that's certainly that's certainly kind of what i've put most of my time and attention into um i just i love and again it just goes back to tony because i listen to i listen to those old tony rice records or listen to him on like the bluegrass sessions or dry, you know, just anything. He just, he, he like sparks the band and, you know, I, I try as I might, I can't do it like that, but I've always, I've always just been so um, attracted to the idea that rhythm guitar can subliminally just change everything about the string band music, that it doesn't have to be in this rhythm guitar doesn't have to sit in the normal role. You've already, I mean, obviously everything can be flexible, but you know, if you got mandolin chopping on two and four, basically, if you got bass playing on one and three, basically, um, it's like those big beats are already covered. Mandolin's rolling 16th notes, fiddles playing long tones. It's like anything that the guitar could do would be redundant. So what the guitar should do, in my opinion, is keep the groove going. Always like make the, you know, make the music dance, make it, make it dance. You got to make it dance, but also just add color and interest and, and get people to do things in the band. And, and, you know, that started with Clarence White, Tony Rice made a high art of it. And, uh, and that's, that's what I really love to do. And you're carrying on that tradition, which is amazing. Well, I'm trying, I'm trying. Thank you. (laughs) Absolutely. All right. Thank you so much to Chris for doing the podcast. That was fantastic. Go and check out all those recordings he talked about by the seldom seen. They're great stuff. Mighty Poplar again comes out next week, the 31st of March. Be sure to head over and follow Chris on social media and his website to see all the tour dates and what he's going to be doing for the year. Thanks so much for listening. If you're going to be at the Charleston Bluegrass Festival, 315, I'll be playing with my band on Saturday and uh, I'll be in Nashville. Uh, So maybe I'll see you there too. Cheers, everybody.